I'm Phil D'Angelo, Managing Director of Focus Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor in Newburgh, New York, which sponsors the investment podcast, Two Question Tuesday. We have special guest hosts on this week's Two for Tuesday with us, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney from New York's 18th Congressional District. Welcome, Mr. Congressman. Nice to be with you. Sean covers the Hudson Valley. Uh, The Congressman has been kind enough to join us today to answer questions about the Ukraine, the commodities market and the commodities cycle, uh, which affects American investors and citizens in general. I'll now turn it over to guest host Lawrence Carroll, Larry, for some questions. Okay. Hi, Congressman. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Larry. Um, How are you? I'm good. Okay, great. You serve on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and that's responsible for overseeing the nation's intelligence agencies. You were in Europe doing intelligence work when the Russians invaded Ukraine. Can you tell us what you saw on the ground in those days and where you think the conflict will go? Yeah, you bet. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I'd, I'd do anything to help my friend uh, Phil D'Angelo, who is just one of the smartest, most effective people I know, except maybe for his wife, Tina, but also uh, a great supporter and a friend. So thanks for having me. Uh, great to be with you. Look, it's horrific what's happening. I, and so and none of us wants to sound um, you know, positive, you know, in any way, except I will tell you that what is unprecedented is the extraordinary coordination between the U.S. intelligence agencies and all of our NATO partners. So we were in Munich for the security conference with President Zelensky about 48, 72 hours before the war started. Um, also with the German chancellor, the British prime minister, uh, later that week in London, uh, and also the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and uh, the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. I was actually at NATO headquarters when the war began and was briefed that morning by our chief intelligence representative to NATO, what we call the J2. And he said they literally began the day with, with all the NATO uh, intelligence chiefs and about half the room apologizing to the United States for their skepticism uh, that the intelligence was overstated. But what that gave us was the ability to put in place the sanctions and do the prep work before the invasion. Uh, And the allies were terrific about uh, doing that, but they thought sort of on a contingency basis. But when it actually came to pass, that's why you saw the Germans snap in uh, place so fast and so robustly. It's why you saw our other NATO uh, and EU partners really come on board. And so where are we? Where are we is that the Ukrainians, against all predictions, have fought the Russian army to a standstill on the ground. That's likely to continue. We are flooding that country with what we call ATGMs and man pads. These are the anti-armor, shoulder-fired, anti-tank weapons, javelins, they're called, and the shoulder-fired air defense weapons, the the stingers. Uh, But maybe uh, as importantly and less reported are the presence of TB2 drones that the Turks are providing. We're about to load them up with some switchblade drones uh, as well. These are game changers because unlike uh, the shoulder-fired munitions, they are precision, but they are also patient. They can hang above these armored columns, and they're killing a lot of Russians right now. And so I think you're likely to see that stalemate continue. Now, it's coming at a tremendous cost of, uh, of, of, of human life in Ukraine. But look at the price the Russians are paying as well, not just in lost soldiers, though, There are thousands of dead Russians now. But look at the hole we blew in the Russian economy with the unprecedented sanctions that have been put in place. So, Larry, I think we're going to win is the short answer to your question, and Putin's going to lose. The gain is to bring that time frame in so that it's not a 10-year conflict uh, and and, and it it can be resolved more quickly. 
but I but I think the the evidence would would indicate to me that the Russian president has badly miscalculated, overreached, uh, and I think ultimately this will bring down his regime as it brings down his uh, economy. But it's going to take some time. Um, well, thank you. Speaking about the sanctions, you're also a member of the House Agriculture Committee. And for the global food market, there are worse, fewer worse countries to be in a conflict than Russia and Ukraine. Over the past five years, together, they've accounted for nearly 30% of the exports of the world's wheat, 17% of corn, 32% of barley, which is a crucial source of animal feed, and 75% of sunflower seed oil and important cooking oil. So in addition, Russia is the world's largest producer of fertilizer, and this has caused the prices of all these commodities to rise sharply, and the lack of fertilizer threatens this year's crops. The sanctions are adding to surging inflation in the U.S. and threatening an increase in world hungry, hunger, and threatening a huge increase in world hunger. What is the U.S. doing about the wheat and corn shortages, and how much more does Congress see prices rising, and what does it plan to do about inflation? Right. Well, I do serve on the Ag Committee, and I know, uh, you know we've been We've been working closely with Secretary Vilsack to increase U.S. production and that of our allies. That's the best thing we can do. Unlike in the in the energy space, there aren't um, there aren't the same countervailing concerns about over reliance on on any particular source or particular country. But I also think if you look at the world agricultural supply and demand estimates, you're you're likely to get a more nuanced answer than I can give you on the effects of the price. But obviously, it's inflationary. You can't take that much supply uh, off the market without creating uh, upward price pressure, just as we're seeing in energy. Um, we haven't seen it interestingly yet, as far as I can tell, in, in, the, in the price that American consumers are paying. But of course, we're in an inflationary period, and so it's hard to net that out. But it's, it's nothing good, I can tell you that. <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, go, going along with what we're talking about, um, you know, there's a couple, this is really the first time in a decade where we're taking monetary stimulus out of the out of the markets, right? So, you know, you, you have three main reasons that always cause recessions. Uh, one would be, you know, inflation coming into the picture, right, which checks both of those boxes. Uh, the other part, you know, would be some sort of uh, uh, event where crude always goes over $100 a barrel to check the box on that. And now you have, as of this morning, you have inversion on the yield curve between the two and five year. Uh, and slowly, the whole yield curve is starting to invert. So, you know, I, I know that you also serve on the infrastructure committee, and we know that that bill has been passed. And I know it's up to the states to spend the money, et cetera. But, you know, we're, we're removing the, the monetary stimulus for the first time in a decade globally, really. And now we have some fiscal stimulus coming into the system from the monies that were passed about a year ago. Uh, this is going to lead to more inflation. And I just uh, think it's going to be a very tough time unless, you know, you, you hit a recession and, and prices do temporarily come back in. And I don't think there's really any response uh, that, you know, the government can provide that's going to ease this um, right now. It's unfortunate, probably short lived, uh, but there's definitely some concerns out there, as you're well aware of. Well, but Phil, I think you would agree that um, it's really sector specific, right? I mean, what 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 I think is characterizing uh, this period post pandemic or coming out of the pandemic is is the is the contradictory and often um, often offsetting information, right? I mean, yes, you're dealing with a situation where the Fed is likely to raise rates. You are dealing with high energy prices, and that's likely to continue in the short term. Um, you have uh, you know. In, 
an extremely rapid uh, drop in unemployment coming out of the pandemic and very high demand. You have high savings levels and 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 Americans relatively cash rich right now, right? We have we have the strongest economic growth in 40 years, and we've created 7.4 million jobs in the last uh, year. Um, and so those things those things net out to something that looks like you know surging economic growth in some sectors and real struggles in others, or competing. Uh, inputs for consumers because we've also had wages increase at, at some of the fastest rates in decades, which have and definitely so, helped offset the inflation coming in. Yep. Right, and so if you're talking about you know if you're talking about certain industries, they're still flat on the back. But as you know, in the Hudson Valley, if you're talking about real estate, it's it's surging, right? Or if you're talking about um, commercial real estate, it matters whether you're talking about in city centers or whether you're talking about in the suburbs. It's and so I do think I do think you're going to have to disaggregate some of that data depending on who you are and what you care about to try to understand what you're likely to be in for. I mean, if you're a defense industry uh, investor, I mean, you know, the whole world is is beating a path to our door to increase their defense spending right now. And you look at what Europe's doing, uh, not just NATO, but, but, but EU nations, not to mention our own country. We just passed a budget for the United States that is $1.5 trillion over the next six months. Uh, people talk about build back better being 1.5 trillion over 10 years, right? Yeah. And you touched up, you touched on infrastructure. My goodness, and you're talking about massive investments, um, wealth creating investments over the long term. Add one more thing to your equation because I think it's really significant. It's not done yet, but it's going to get done. House and Senate have both passed versions of the Competes Act. It's called the Chips Bill. Senate calls it USICA. For people who don't know, this is a massive investment in American supply chains which will be, together with the infrastructure bill, should be anti-inflationary, right? I mean, you're talking about also tens of billions of dollars in investments um, with a lot of discretion in the supply chain crisis. So, so I think issues like energy and food prices could be affected by that. But then, of course, $50 billion of investments in things like microprocessor manufacturing, you know, chips, uh, also solar panels, other high-wage uh, uh, industries, reshoring those jobs in the United States should be very good for New York, by the way, and also billions of dollars in uh, basic research uh, money. So but that's the most important economic policy, all of it directed at China, by the way, that the Congress is going to pass probably since you know the early part of the Cold War and the, and, the, and, the, and the space race. And so when you add up the infrastructure bill, the competes bill, and of course, the rescue plan, which is still kicking around, I mean, you're talking about probably six trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus, and probably another four trillion from the Fed. You know, that's what fifty percent of U.S. GDP in a in an eighteen month period. So I, I, I don't see a recession. I think you could certainly have inflationary pressures. Well, but- and that's my so our concern, right, is the short term getting from A to B. So you know, while you talk about yeah, these are all great things, and this is what gives us hope, and this is why you should be invested long term, especially in the American economy. I mean, when we look at our portfolios, we're mainly domestic right now. But I think when you when you look at those great things happening, getting from A to B might be a little bit tough of a pull, given the geopolitics of the situation right now. Amen. And obviously, it's a very dangerous situation. I, I do think I do think, though, uh, we are making some really important decisions for long term economic growth in the United States between the competes bill and the infrastructure bill. And, and we should probably give ourselves a little bit of credit. I mean, I don't know in the history of the country if we've ever lifted the entire economy over a disaster like the pandemic. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about tens of millions of small businesses and restaurants yeah. that are still kicking because 
because they were kept the doors open with right, you know, PPP loans or US, uh, USDA. And have you loans. seen how those restaurants are doing lately? I mean, you can't get in at night. You know, the, the Hudson Valley. Yeah. Although, although we still we still have some more to do, right, on hospitals and and even restaurants, but but because we're still trying to wrap up the pandemic. But yeah, look, I mean, so so I think that that could have been a lot worse. We are definitely dealing with inflationary pressures through a combination of restarting the world economy, call it the pandemic, and Putin. I think it's probably um, at least as much those two things as anything that's been done in Washington, um, because of course, Build Back Better isn't 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 passed, isn't going to pass, and so whatever the inflationary concerns about that are sort of mooted at this point. Um, but it's real, and people are feeling it. And it's going to have a political implication, but it's going to have an economic one, of course. Well, how does this affect American citizens in general? You're talking about sanctions, and is there going to be blowback on people in America? I mean, we're getting it with rising food prices from the lack of wheat, and we're getting it from rising oil and gas prices. And how are how are the rising gas and oil prices affecting transportation and infrastructure, you know, trucking and whatever else moving stuff around the country? And um, are you guys... Yeah. Is stuff happening with sustainable energy? Yeah, no, that's well. Listen, Larry, that's absolutely right. There's going to be impacts on 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 the American economy, on the global economy. You know, this is this is the largest ground war in Europe since the Second World War. If anybody thinks you know we're not going to be affected by it, I think they're they're just not paying attention. Um, now, now that's it's it, it, we shouldn't we shouldn't just use that as an excuse to do nothing, right? That's why I think we could do a lot of things to bring down energy costs. I'd personally like to see us waive the federal and state gas taxes for at least six months, maybe a year. I think we should backfill the trust funds that they that they support so we don't rob our infrastructure investments to, to bring down gas prices. But I mean, you're talking about 18 cents a gallon on the federal level and between 40 and 80 cents on the state level. So you could take 50 cents off the price of a gallon of gas in most states just by doing those two things. I would I would personally like to see us do some uh, temporary export controls. We increase domestic supplies. Now I'd exempt NATO countries and Ukraine, obviously, uh, but I do think we could do some work there. I really think we could do some uh, help to consumers on this in a non-inflationary way. And by the way, the oil companies can't be profiting off of Putin's aggression, so they're going to have to either pass those savings along, particularly if we lift the gas tax, or we ought to look at some sort of windfill profits uh, legislation. But I'd rather see that done in a sort of voluntary way. Um, so I think there's a bunch of things we can do, but I do think uh, whether you're talking about food prices or energy prices, there's going to be a price. But but can I just say, you know, we're all watching this unfold on TV that nobody's asking us to do what the Ukrainians are doing, which is we're standing up to the whole Russian army coming down the road and they're and they're and they're doing a hell of a job of it. So I think if our contribution is is, you know, rearranging some of these policies to give a break to Americans who are paying a price uh, at the pump, you know, we should do it. Um, and finally, as the um, on the intelligence committee, are you worried about cybersecurity of both federal and commercial interests? And are you guys doing? Is the government doing anything particular to increase our cybersecurity, and specifically on the electric grid? Yeah, I think one of the this is the dog that didn't bark on this war so far. I mean, I think most of us would have predicted a much more aggressive Russian cyber campaign. Not all of which can be controlled, by the way, right? So even if they were trying to do it within Ukraine, it could spread to NATO countries or, or around the world. It's the nature of, of, of cyber warfare. Um, they have not, to date, engaged in uh, a major cyber effort outside of Ukraine. Um, doesn't mean it's not coming. But we are, definitely, um, we are definitely in better shape than we have been in the past. We have hardened a lot of our, of our systems. 
Um, and by the way, deterrence is important in this in this area too. And we spend about $800 billion of your tax money on national security every year. We have exquisite capabilities in cyber, just as we do in other uh, areas. And, and we need to make clear to the Russians that they're going to pay a price, that whatever they do to us, we're going to hit them twice as hard. So I do think this is an area where we need clear doctrines and clear language and clear uh, clear, clear consequences known to the Russians, uh, because right now I think their their calculation was they could roll up Ukraine without without taking down their systems. Um, but right now, I mean, look at and we would never do this by the way. If you look at look at what's going on, you're, you're watching Zelensky make videos from downtown Kiev. You're watching uh, everybody on social media. They still have command and control. They do not own the skies. I mean, if we were doing this invasion we would have taken out their air defenses completely and we would have taken out their command control and communications completely before we went in on the ground. So they were blind and they couldn't communicate with each other and they didn't know, and we own the skies. The Russians have not done any of those things, um, which is malpractice and and to the Ukrainians credit because they've, they've fought tenaciously. But as a result, those type of cyber attacks at this point, um, I'm not sure are going to be a major part of this campaign but we are very much on the lookout for this. And, and we had a briefing in the Intelligence Committee from U.S. Cyber Command, folks at NSA. Um, we track this very carefully. Um, I'm worried about aligned groups, Larry, with some deniability. So I think about a, a, a Russian criminal gang, you know, based in Belarus, Belarus that brings down an American pipeline or an electric grid in some part of the country. And the Russian government says, hey, it's not us. These are criminal hacking groups or some ransomware attack. Those are the kinds, that's the kind of nonsense that we need to make clear. We're not going to tolerate that the Kremlin's going to be held accountable for that. Is Congress devoting more money to, you know, spend on cybersecurity? Yeah, and we have. I mean, if you look at the defense budget and you look at the funding, some of it's classified. But if you look at the, the, def- the defense budget, um, we have enormously increased our capabilities in cyber um, to the point where I, I think it's fair to say we lead the world both in our offensive capabilities and in our defensive preparations. This is an area, though, that requires enormous cooperation between the public and private sector, right? Because you got most of the hardware in the private sector and most of the knowledge in the public sector. So what I've been doing is I've, I'm writing legislation that would increase that information sharing. We need to we need to declassify more information for private companies, and those private companies need to talk to each other despite proprietary concerns or, or liability concerns, and we can create the structures to help them do that. So that we're doing in cyber uh, what, we, what, we do, what we've done a little better post 9-11 in areas like financial services, where we, we're, we're made aware of suspicious activity, where it's shared across agencies, and, uh, and the private sector gets more info from us because uh, we have it. So, so I think there's a lot more to do, and, and sometimes you really only kick the tires when you're, when you're in an active uh, kind of situation like this. But so far, so good. I mean, the fact is, is that we have not seen cyber play a major role yet in this conflict, either in Europe or in the United States. Let's let's hope it stays that way. I know the congressman's got a very busy schedule, and I, I want to thank him for coming on today. Uh, Mike, any any remarks? Well, no, I think it's really interesting what you said about the information sharing amongst the cybersecurity uh, companies, just because if you look under the surface of technology and relating it back to the market and how technology stocks have acted, there's actually one sector of tech that really has weathered the storm far better than others, and that's cyber, um, which is interesting. And you know, I take a lot of my cues from the market, and I, I love how you extrapolated it to the fact that the Russians really haven't made any material offensive in the cybersecurity space and how they could have really taken down a lot of the communications efforts from Ukraine. Um, 
So, I mean, that leads me to believe that hopefully everybody's one step ahead of them <laughs> in the game. So, yeah. well, what I, what I can tell you, as we say, what has been publicly reported is that is that we have really raised our game um, on this, both on offense and defense and in communicating to them consequences, because this just like a kinetic attack. You know, you have to you have to factor in what the enemy is going to do when you launch it. And in this case, the Russians should have to wonder. What's going to happen to them if they go down these roads, particularly if they spill over right into NATO countries, into into U.S. systems, because that's a real concern. So I, they may have made a calculation to uh, we don't know. But based on that, they may have made a calculation to hold back a little bit on that. Uh, the Ukrainians, by the way, are also good at this. Um, and and so among very, a, lot, yeah. a lot a lot of the people they could have picked on in the world, they're actually dealing with very sophisticated, um, uh, you know, uh, tech community in Ukraine. Um, if you look at the way I, anything, Ukraine's been winning the information war, they've been winning the hacking war, um, and so we're pretty encouraged right now. Like you know, it's a it's a it's a day to day situation though. But I think that what we could do, Mike, in this country is we could get our tech community in a in a more routinized conversation with government uh, and national security agencies the way financial services firms have to file um, suspicious activity reports, just as a matter of course, when, when certain types of, so I have legislation that would, that would create those sort of structures in tech and, and you got to get through some of the competitive, some of the competitive and some of the liability and right. And, and kind of proprietary concerns these companies have so that they're sharing across uh, the, their private networks um, that kind of, because they face common threats that they all, they don't often get an action on, and we can do a much better job of giving them giving them information as we get it and declassifying more rapidly. Um, I was out in Silicon Valley recently at the FBI field office there, where a lot of this happens. Um, but I think you'll see. I'm going to write some legislation in the Intelligence Authorization Act that will get at this this suspicious activity question. And and I do think you should know we're watching this very closely. I, I think this is. There's a couple of things with every with every major conflict, right? There's a couple of new things that define it. I think on this one, you're going to see cyber for sure. We're going to understand what the limits and usefulness of that is in a, in a real shooting war. Um, and also drones. I think actually the biggest story of this, this war are going to be uh, the drones. If you, if you look back at the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, they really turned the tide in that conflict. And it doesn't surprise me at all that the Russians are really having trouble dealing with you know, a, a Ukrainian defense force that is capable of operating these systems. They're relatively cheap. They're replicable. You can you can you can lose three of them and put three more in the air. They're unmanned. They're 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 precision guided munitions, and they're patient. They can hang up there in the air and wait uh, for 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 their opportunities. And and it's making it very hard for uh, the Russian army to advance. And so I think those are really going to come of age in a way that stingers and. And manpads have been, uh, and stingers and javelins, excuse me, have been known for a while. I think drones are really going to be a big part of this um, this conflict. Interesting. Well, and I, I love your bullish take on America. I mean, you, you spat out some some really great statistics, and uh, you know that uh, really maybe we are uh, better than we think. You know, we we deal with this day to day, and uh, the fluctuations are certainly you know been vast. But uh, your long oh, come on. If, Your if bullishness about, on this country is, is is terrific. If we're talking about the Russian army right now, I mean, you know, we we would. I mean, I, I think I think in most of the, most of the four stars that I talk to, the combatant commanders, um, you know, they would they would quit in 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 shame if they had the performance these guys have. Oh, absolutely. Um, so you're really seeing a gap analysis there between American capabilities and Russian ones. Let's remember we've got about you know 
you know, 15x the economic power. But the point is, is that well, we when also, I'm talking about the economy. I'm not talking about how yeah, the, but we the also have, tag I mean, Russian army is competing versus the Ukrainians. Yeah. I think that well, they, well imagine how they'd stack up against NATO, right? So uh, that ought to make you feel better. And and I mean these are the Ukrainians, after all, not not a full a fully interoperable NATO force, which would be which would be just decimating these Russian systems. Now, now you gotta the Russians obviously are nuclear armed power, and we want to be very, very, very sensible about how we engage on this. But I will tell you, yeah, I'd feel pretty good about it as an American. I'd also think that when you look at the Chinese model and when you look at the threat to say Taiwan over the next five years from China. When you look at what we're putting in place here to, to build our own country with the infrastructure bill and to, and to win the economic competition and to, re, to reshore our supply chains, um, you can also feel pretty good about how we're setting up the U.S. vis-a-vis yes. that, that competition globally. Because, because here's the deal. This is the rush is the storm right now. It's like a category five hurricane. It's intense. It's destructive. But China's the climate. And China is the, China is the longer term threat that actually has to be addressed um, more patiently, but ultimately it's actually a bigger, a bigger threat to us than the, than, than the storm as bad as it is now. Anyway, Absolutely. and great, great thank you for your time. time. We appreciate it. Well, thank, right. thank you very much, Congressman, Mike and Phil. And if, and if any of our viewers would like to submit a question, send it to our email address, question at twoquestiontuesday.com. And we'll be back next week.